we don't teach lawyers how to be business people and yet we expect them to run a business. Like you can go to school and get a master's in hospital administration. Welcome to a special edition episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast featuring Conrad Som of Mockingbird Marketing and Guy Sakowakis of AttorneySync. But we don't teach lawyers foundational statistics, foundational accounting. These things are really important. You can't run a hospital without knowing these things. Why do we think we can run a law firm? I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Conrad and Gee to discuss the key differences between strategic thinking and tactical approaches when it comes to legal marketing, the impact that personal brand can have in enhancing your online presence, and how to leverage the power of artificial intelligence to scale your law firm. There's always a place for human beings. It should free up more time to do the human part of lawyering. It should free up more time to do service and to empathize with your clients and to do a lot of the things that it just can't do. If you're billing for those rote production types of tasks, you're in trouble. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Kara, Gee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. So glad to be here. It's going to be awesome. It's nice to come back. I like what you've done to the place. Well, thank you. Thank you. I know you guys are like no stranger to podcasts and you host one of your own. I'm sure you guys do several all the time, but I am curious, how did you guys meet? Great question. We met and we don't know that we met, but it is almost certain we met at a bar in Ann Arbor. I frequented the bar. Guy was there behind the bar and the likelihood that he did not pour me a drink and I didn't pay him is pretty much statistically zero. Yeah, that's how we probably like came in contact. We actually didn't know that we knew each other uh, until I met Conrad when he was CMO at Abo. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll go way back. This was long before finding influencers was a thing, but I made a list of 20 people that the leadership at Avo needed to know, and Guy was on the list. Ha. Huh. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that, but that's true well, story. That's how Avo got so big was having me on that <laughs> list. It's like everybody has their Avo origin story. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> right. I actually try and hide it now, but anyway. It's that's like the Belichick coaching tree. A little bit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you guys could easily be competitors, but from everything I've seen, you guys are great collaborators. You work together. You have agencies of your own, but how do you make it work? Just like staying friends, staying collaborators? I think in the industry, there's a lot of approaches to dealing with clients. And I think Guy and I share an ethos as to how we should be thinking about and serving our clients and everything else just falls out from there. I think that's fair. Yeah, it's alignment on values. It's alignment on client service. A lot of it's alignment on like how we think about approaching marketing 
law firms and we compete, we consider ourselves friendly competitors. But I think also in general, there's a lot more to be gained from having conversations and collaborating. There is like thinking about everybody's your enemy. That's been my experience. I agree hundred percent. So let's get into this. I love that when you guys do your podcast, you guys frequently disagree with one another. It's great to hear multiple perspectives. Maybe we'll have some of that here. Of course, we'll talk about marketing. I'd love to be able to cut through the noise. It seems like there's more noise than ever. And there's going to be people listening to this podcast that want one answer of what should they do to grow their firm and how they can be more successful, what works in marketing, what doesn't. Let's first talk about the difference between strategies versus tactics. I mean, the tactics are to get you where you want to go. And the strategy is overall, what are we doing? Are we trying to grow by X percent? Are we trying to minimize our costs? What is the mix of all the different tactics that we can put together to get to where we want to go? And I think one of the fallacies that happens in legal frequently is you'll get the firms that look at other firms. Well, they're doing this. We need to do that because they started a TikTok channel and they see what other people are doing. Oh, they're advertising on billboards. We need to do billboards. It really depends where you want to go and having an understanding of where you want to go having a strategy and then putting the tactics in place to get there, that's the key. My bias is most law firms look at what other law firms are doing and wish they could be doing those things. They don't understand what it actually takes to do those things, nor where those things will get them, but they think they should be doing those things. And on the flip side, the agencies are often like, I do pay-per-click, so I'm a tactical genius. You need more pay-per-click. Well, maybe we should be doing, no, 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 you need pay-per-click. It's the world's a nail and I'm a hammer kind of problem. And so you have those misalignments. I think that's where it comes from. Yeah. Just to kind of dovetail on that, the tactics thing, all it results in is these random acts of marketing, right? Chasing shiny objects, new platform comes out, I got to get on there. Maybe you're copying somebody else, which I always find that one to be so funny because like the whole point of marketing is to stand out and your first instinct is to go copy somebody. Like that's antithetical to standing out is doing what somebody else is doing. Strategies, like that's like the blueprint, right? It's the game plan. What are we trying to do? The tactics are the pieces that get you there, but so many people are so focused on the tactics. I got to know what's the magic bullet we talk about this with lawyers all the time. I'm sure you do too. They don't teach business in law school, right? And so it's kind of like an afterthought to folks. So like, they're like, I know I need to do this thing, whatever it is, website, search ads, social media, I got to do this stuff, but it's like drive-by. It's like, I'm not actually thinking about a cohesive plan for a destination, whether it's growth, whether it's trying to achieve some kind of business metric. And then, so you start doing stuff. And then it's like, sometimes you look at it and you're like, yeah, what you're doing over here is actually completely antithetical to the tactic you're doing over here. There's no cohesive plan. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And in my mind, everything works. Newsletters work, yep. billboards work, TV works, social works, SEO works, direct mail. It all works. I mean, there's somebody who's having success with it. And yet when somebody bounces around different tactics, it almost seems like they either don't give it enough time, they don't give it enough investment, or there's just not a clear strategy in place. Because if we really get down to like, what is marketing? To me, it's always been, amplification of a message. You just invest more in getting certain message out. And if that is not the right message, it doesn't work. If it's going right message, wrong audience, it doesn't work. Right audience, wrong message, and just any permutation of that. But it seems like many people don't love to have the hold up conversation of, well, let's figure out what your goals are. Let's figure out what we're trying to do and what the plan looks like and how we're going to measure it. Let's just start running the ads, right? Or let's just start doing the newsletters. I don't know why I always fall back on this analogy, but a lot of it's like, dieting or going to the gym, right? Like people are like, try a new fad diet. That's the tactic, right? Oh, I'm just not going to eat carbs, right? Or there's this new workout where I can only spend five minutes doing two minute abs. You can get abs in two minutes. Oh my gosh, I got to do that. Versus being like, what are you really trying to do? Are you trying to like lose weight? Are you trying to like gain mass? Marketing is the same business is the same thing. 
it's work. It's the discipline. It's every single day going to the gym. It's every single day refining that message, analyzing the numbers, looking at the feedback is like, is it working? That's work. No one wants to do that. Everybody wants to like, oh, what's the tactic? Conrad, I joke about this one all the time, but Pokemon Go came out. Literally phone That's calls right. from lawyers. That's right. How do we do this Pokemon Go thing? I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> um, anyway, sorry, that was a little bit of a rant. I mean, let's just start off by saying what doesn't work. First of all, the five-minute apps, that doesn't work. Anything that seems either too good to be true or is immediate result or immediate payoff with minimal time, minimal investment. If you look at the whole equation, it really wouldn't make sense. I mean, this idea that if you had some honeypot, you can get this massive win and that only you and not every other law firm in America could see this amazing success without putting in any effort or time or any money. And that could be our little secret. That in itself, just keep scrolling. Don't do that. But what else doesn't work? Well, I think you hinted at it a little bit. There's so much promise by the agency community of the five-minute apps. Do this and triple your revenue. Do this. 10 easy steps to make this work. I've spent a career, he's spent a career, figuring out every single nuance that we can to get our clients more clients, right? To make growth happen. There aren't those little secrets. So the notion that there's the five simple ways to get your law firm ranking to the top of Google, those things do not work. It is a hard slog in digital. Now, there are some cases where you have first mover advantage. LSAs come out. The people who jumped on LSAs really quickly, they were killing it. And as new technologies do come out, there is a benefit to having the flexibility to drop things and jump on those opportunities because no one else has figured it out. But that secret... That secret gets spilled very, very quickly, right? So there's value in it, but it dissipates really, really quickly as well. You any other thoughts on anything that just doesn't work that people just avoid? No, I'm, I'm with you. I'd say this all the time. I'm like, everything works for somebody. You can always find an example, even stuff where you're like, people can't be doing Yellow Pages ads. And it's like, guess what? In some communities, that's how people still use Yellow Pages ads. And then the other side of that coin is, is like something works for everybody, right? So there's something that will work for you if you find it, but the days of, I'm just going to practice law, that's all I'm going to do. And then I hope yeah, that enough people sing my praises and talk about how good of a job I did. I think that's becoming much, much more difficult to do because of the way that the internet and social media has democratized information. The friction is gone. You can get referrals. Speaking of Avo, lawyers hated it. They're going to be rated and you're going to have stars client testimonials on Google business profiles. I can't stand that. People are actually going to talk about me. And so to answer your question, the people who are, I'm just going to put my head in the sand. I'm not going to deal with any of this stuff. It's too much work, too many ethical problems. I don't think you're going to see a lot of those firms over the next 10, 15, 20 years, except for there's some very niche practices where like you're the only game in town. If you can find that, that can still work. But you're trying to do a volume-based, direct-to-consumer anything. It's going to be really hard to do it without both strategy, tactics, discipline of doing that every day, and really you know, being online. I don't care what business you're in. You're online. You're in the internet business. Yeah, agreed. If you look at some of your most successful clients that you guys work with, let's say the ones that have made the most amount of progress from the time they started working with you to now, are there any common trends that you see, whether mindsets they embody or investments that they make or approaches that they take, kind of the success leaves clues? That's a great question. Yeah. They eventually get to a point where they have a solid understanding of their business economic reality. And to me, that means probably have a leader who has gone from lawyer to CEO. And a lot of law firms have metrics. Gene and I were talking about this earlier. There's dashboards galore. It's not like there's a paucity of data. What's lacking is the insight and the analysis of that data that makes you better, right? And I think those firms that 
can get beyond, oh, here's my dashboard, we're doing great, to actually understanding the business metrics that should be on the dashboard and what you can do from them. What's the context of that data and how do I improve that data over a long, long, long period of time? The ones that have done that repeatedly, you'll see we're 2% better, we're 3% better, we're 6% better. You do that year in, year out, you have a really, really solid firm. And if during that time, part of your plan is to build brand affinity and awareness, you win. That is a persistent asset that makes all the other stuff work better. It just does. And so those are the two elements to me. One, that kind of persistent, ongoing brand affinity and awareness. It's a CEO mindset. And it doesn't always come from the lawyers. Sometimes there's some great COOs out there who are basically running law firms behind the face of the CEO who happens to be the lawyer. Those people are magic. Those are the ones who really move the needle in the long run. Yeah. For me, it's clear vision of where we're trying to go. If you don't have the vision, it doesn't matter. I don't care what your strategy is, what your tactics are. You got to say over the next year, three years, 10 years, this is what we're trying to do. That will help shape the strategy you put in place. Just some other things too, because I really like the way you asked that question. Conrad, you can chime in on this one too, but we're agency people. But the firms that are committed to having in-house resources, they're marketing accountable, right? So they've got somebody that's inside the firm. They tend to do better. And now again, we're an agency. The agencies can do a lot of great stuff to support those people, innovative new ideas, subject matter expertise, whether it's like going deep on paid search or something. I think there's an overlap between, look, we're treating this like a business. We're taking this seriously. That means we have to have investments and resources and people inside the firm that know us, that know our vision, know where we're trying to go. And then you can work with strategic partners to get the additional help. But the ones that are hard, they listen to a podcast or they read a blog post and they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go hire someone to do this thing. Maybe they're doing a freelancer. Maybe they're working with an agency, but there's no one on the inside that's really like, are we even driving to the right place? Those are the ones I think are in trouble. It's about investing. It's about taking it seriously, treating like a business. My key on that inside person is they have an intimacy with the data. They're running this on the numbers and they're going not just from the data as a report from last month, but it's the blueprint for next month. They also have the authority. And I think a lot of people will take that marketing data person and it will be someone with no real or actual authority within the organization. And so it doesn't matter, right? It's just some poor schmo who's feeding data to the managing partner and they get yelled at or not yelled at based on the data, but they can't actually make the change. I guess my question for you, Guy, is do you think my ideal person inside the firm has a handle on the data as well as that kind of ability to make change? They certainly have to influence it, right? They have to be at the table. You got to have somebody at a leadership level who's saying, look, yeah. this is where we're trying to go. These are the metrics we're using to try to be leading indicators. And we're actually hitting these numbers. It's got to be business metrics. But yeah, same thing with us, with an agency. It doesn't do us any good to say things like, hey, you missed 5% of your phone calls last month. If someone doesn't actually make the change to answer the phone, I don't care how many ads you run, I don't care how many tactics you deploy, if someone's not handling intake and you can't fix that, then it's not gonna go anywhere. The commonality is, and you said this too, and I know you've said it many times, it's treating it like a business, right? We're not chasing these vanity marketing metrics. We're not getting sold because we saw some Facebook ad that's like, we're going to go to seven or eight figures in six months doing this magic secret. This is a business. How do businesses function? What are the numbers that actually indicate that we're moving in the right direction? And then somebody inside the firm has to own that. And there are plenty of lawyers that put on the CEO and COO and CMO hat 
I think that's fine if you've got that kind of person, but somebody's got to be accountable for looking at the firm that way. I'm a big David C. Baker guy and business of expertise. I'm always talking about it. But a lot of people go to law school, they're a practitioner, even the same thing. They can be a good lawyer, but they're not thinking about their practice like they're running a business. And look, that can be fine. If it's a hobby for you that you get paid for, that's great. But you've got growth goals. You want to grow a team. You want to have an influence in your community. You want to do something that's bigger. And there's nothing wrong with it. Plenty of people making good lifestyles, helping people. It's a mindset shift. And the ones that we see that hire an agency... They've got a growth mindset. Like they're looking to grow. They speak the language of business. I mean, it's funny. It's right in our target list for EOS. One thing we always keep coming around to, you have to be able to talk business. If you're not willing to talk about P&Ls and expenses and cost of goods sold and fees, you're probably gonna have a hard time having success and growth in my opinion. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to <laughs> delve into all of it, but I want to start with the earlier part of that conversation, talking about kind of the difference between agency and the in-house model and I'd love to get both of your perspectives on this. It seems that the hybrid approach is probably what's best. I don't know that a law firm should outsource their entire marketing and let's say case generation function to any company just because there needs to be some sense of ownership in-house as well. But then we also see law firms that say, I'm going to build out this whole in-house marketing team and there's a lack of expertise, right? It's very, very surface level. It's a lot of generalists and that doesn't work. So what would you say is the ideal structure? It's hard because this is a very easy to come across with a biased answer, but like he and I have a massive head start on every in-house pay-per-click person because we've got the data. We're spending millions and millions of dollars a month. I know what works in PI. We already know. We don't have to learn that. We already know. We have the data. We have the models. We have the words. We have the negative words. Like we've got a very sophisticated system and it's not me. It's the agency world. There's a value in that. Staying up to speed on having a really solid SEO. You want to win in SEO, you have to be really, really good in legal, period. So that's a huge headcount, right? Running pay-per-click, there's a lot of those expertise. To me, the ideal stack is I really look at this as a leadership person in a law firm who has control over CRM system data and how data flows within those things to make sure that they are accountable for the accuracy of that data. And they are actually accountable for making sure that that data improves. But the tactical pieces, I think you want to outsource a lot of that from an expertise perspective. And the worst hire, the worst hire is the unicorn tactical person at $80,000 a year who is a C minus on all of those pieces. You will die in legal if you try and play with that. Unless you're in the North Poughkeepsie immigration law only for Spanish speakers market, right? But that's your worst hire. Yeah, bunch of asterisks here, but- let's you're an attorney. Let's, right, it depends. No, let's assume that you're like, I wanna take over this market in this practice area. You know, I wanna be the PI person in this major metro. Yeah, it's hybrid. Usually the economic metrics around the in-house team start to not add up because for all the different skill sets you really need to be the dominant force, you're not finding that in one person. You're talking to team. And that's the other thing I always tell people is, you know, people ask me, why don't I just do this in-house? And this isn't just specific to law firms, businesses all across the country. They have this same conversation with their internal teams all the time. And the internal team, there's a lot of strength that they have because they know the business, they're on the ground, especially in professional services, because they're right next to all the leaders. They know what the personality is. From a content development standpoint, they're going to tease out that message a lot better than a lot of agencies will. But then you compare that to the cost 
of a fractional resource that you get from an agency where you get all these different disciplines. That's why the hybrid makes so much sense. And to your point, I agree with you. The ones that are just like, look, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm not going to review and approve content. We're going to create fake avatars and buy fake reviews. And the agencies are all doing that stuff. Craziness, but we see it all the time. And we could do a whole podcast on the dirty side of all this stuff. But that's where Eric Turkowitz talks about this. You outsource your marketing, you outsource your ethics. By the way, lawyers are supposed to put lawyer responsible for this ad, supposed to be on a lot of these things. Someone's got to be responsible for it. And I think it's a healthy dynamic to have in-house people working with outsource providers because you get that expertise, you're not paying for it full-time, and you've got the people on the ground on the inside that really know the business who can help carry that through across the line. And then there's the other piece of, yeah, I know you were mentioning this earlier, which is everything beneath the iceberg where... Let's say you've got great marketing and whatever that means. Let's say it's effective at getting the phone to ring and it's attracting the right people. Then comes the question of ROI, return on investment. And there's so many ways to mess this up from the phone call all the way to the signed case and beyond. It almost seems like that should be just as much, if not more of a consideration in developing a strategy of making sure that you're dialed in internally, that the infrastructure is there, that the phones are being answered, that cases are being moved forward properly, that you're maximizing the value on said cases. All of this can impact the value of a case. It can impact client lifetime value, et cetera. But a lot of times people just blame the marketing. They look at the number at the end we and know. say, oh, yeah, by the oh, way, we yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is the biggest, <laughs> really struck right at our hearts here because this is the thing we run into all the time. Firms will be like, I want local SEO. And I'm like, you've got like a hundred one-star reviews. If we get you more visibility, you're just going to be spreading the word of your bad reputation for client service, right? They're spending money on TV ads. I'm like, what do you think these people are sitting there watching your TV ad? They're searching for you on the internet and they're seeing these bad reviews. You got 25% missed calls on your call rail report last month. There's just no amount of advertising or marketing that's going to fix this problem. It just gets more expensive, right? You're fumbling on the one-yard line over and over again. But this is why that person, that in-house person, having an understanding and the authority to make changes on the one-yard line is so important, right? Some of the best clients that I work with have people who just listen in on phone calls and follow up. And, oh, this it's not like, oh, they didn't hire us. It's why didn't they hire us? Why didn't we follow up? Why did it take four hours to get back to that form fill? And it's following up and it's that internal management of people. That's stuff that you cannot have an agency do. But if you nail that stuff, it has this multiplicative effect because where you go back and you're spending all this money on people like me and Guy and Google, and then you're not answering the phone. Like Those pieces are so, so vital. And then having the technical capacity and expertise to tie all of this together accurately right? That is key. And I think that's one of the misses that law firms have is, oh, we put in the system. It's not really giving you the right data, right? You want someone who's responsible to that data being accurate. It seems like there's like this messy middle. In an ideal state, somebody is very much engaged in their business. They've got their metrics dialed in. They're serious. They're able to actually leverage any sort of investment they make. And then there's the majority of people just trying a bunch of things and wondering why it's not working and doing it for a little bit. And then that doesn't work. Then jumping to the next thing. And it seems like that propagates over the course of years where they just lose faith in certain mediums and certain organizations or even just marketing in general and just think that they don't have a chance to succeed. I think we talked about this before. If you know what your numbers are, even the phone call answer rate, if you know what that number is, 
you'll be mad about it and it will be above average. If you don't know what it is, you think you're really good at it. So for those of you who are listening, if you don't know those key numbers, how long does it take from the phone call to turn into a case? What is our percentage of leads that turn into consultations? If you don't know those numbers, you probably think you're doing a good job and you're not. And you're blaming the marketing. You're going to try Clubhouse and TikTok and this and that. And you're going to invest so much money at the top of the funnel when the problem can be, not always, but can be internal. Well, that's the thing too, is like, we hear this all, Google ads doesn't work. Facebook doesn't work. And I'm like, <laughs> doesn't work for you. I was like, well, you realize that it's working for somebody because <laughs> there's a lot of people spending a lot of money on these platforms. We're not talking about millions of dollars here. We're talking about billions of dollars. And so again, I try to be empathetic. I get it. I know law firms, lawyers been practicing a lot. The world has changed a lot. But this conclusion that this stuff isn't working, let's go chase the new thing. Well, you're in this cycle. You're creating this cycle. There's a lot of nuance here. Take Google, for example. They make it really easy to open an advertising account. You can go broad match lawyer. And then you're like, I'm getting all these phone calls from people that they don't want what I do. It's like, yeah, because it's not that Google ads is broken. It's how you're using it. You can give someone a jet aircraft and be like, they can't fly it. Jet aircraft's not broken. You don't know what you're doing with it. We see a ton of that. You brought up ROI. And I think there's a conversation there too, because before you get into all this stuff, it's like, is ROI what you're trying to do? If you're trying to take over a market, short-term ROI might not be the metric that you're trying to optimize to. Connor, I know you might have some feelings on that. <laughs> ROI is one of my least favorite metrics that gets bandied about so often because ROI is a great investment term. And the concept of it is I put in a dollar and I want to get as much out of that as possible. You know this, and Guy, you know this, in the legal marketing world, new business costs money. It is your cost per client. And so you may be maximizing your ROI firm, but if that's your objective, you are pulling back on a lot of marketing and you are giving up volume. You're giving up market share. That is totally fine. But what drives me crazy is when people are like, oh, they're taking over the market. Their ROI must be amazing. It's probably not. It's probably not. It means that they're running extremely efficient, that they have much lower margins, and they know this, and they are okay with it, and they're optimizing for what is my appropriate cost per client, and can I run the production of what our work is really, really efficiently. And that is not an ROI conversation. ROI is a percentage. Think about ROI as a percentage. If you are really maximizing your ROI, you're giving up business because you're not willing to trade today's profit for tomorrow's revenue, right? I think it's something that's missed by the industry. We talk about ROI all the time, but we also talk about maximum ROI and taking and dominating my market. Those two things are conflicting because ROI and volume are negatively correlated. So as we've been talking about this, I've been trying to figure out the root issue of, of all of this, of all the problems with everything. And to the agency. It's, you know, we talk about <laughs> ROI and then you think about, well, ROI, when you really get down to it, sometimes it's a function of time scale, right? So it's like, if you need this ROI in a month versus a year versus five years, you're going to do different things, right? And you could say that I may have a negative ROI in a year's time, but an extremely positive ROI over five years time, because I was doing the things that were necessary in the short term, or even let's say in the long term for that payoff down the road. And yet, with so much of this marketing that you see from different law firms, you'd never really know how somebody else is doing. And just because you see their marketing or you see billboards or you see social ads, you don't really know their numbers. Now we do. I mean, if we work with some of these firms, we know the truth. It's kind of like if you have kids where you don't want your kids going, hanging out with certain friends, but they're not going to listen to you anyway. And you're like, I just, because you know the parents of those kids and you know they're a mess. But it's like we see the inside of a lot of these firms and it is very, very different sometimes from the outward appearance of what the marketing looks like. 
Oh man, that's real talk right there. We get the same calls. I see this lawyer dancing on TikTok. They got 20 million followers. Like, I don't want to be that. That's what I want. And I'm like, well, empathy. I hear you, but go look at some of the followers. Go look at who they are. It's fake. A lot of them are buying engagement. They're paying for fake reviews. And as we're talking here, like behind the scenes, it's like, try not to just like paint a broad brush here, but the healthy growth metrics, healthy business metrics, it's not there, right? You brought this up and I was thinking about the thought bubble above the head with seeing people's numbers loading around over their heads. Go look at their accounts receivable, right? For the, for the listeners, I think the constructive thing here is don't take it at face value. And we're in a lot of these private Facebook groups, lawyers collaborating, which I think is fantastic and amazing. Like learn from other lawyers, trust, but verify, right? Don't just blindly follow folks because they got a lot of followers. And some of them too, they'd admit it. They got lucky. Maybe they took a case on early on in their career and made a lot of money. And since that point, it's funded a lot of the stuff they're able to do. It doesn't mean that they're still delivering great service and growing and building a team and trying to do all the things that you're trying to do. And so you got to peel back the layers. I get these messages on LinkedIn too. Where it's like, I've signed up for my fourth program, whatever it is. There's a million of them. And I'm like, values in the eye of the beholder. That's why I keep coming back to the same idea of where you're trying to go. Maybe you need the motivating text message in the morning that's like, hey, you get out of bed and like work. Maybe that's valuable to you. That's fine. I'm not trying to diss that. Yes, you are. But is it helping you to achieve your objective? And do you even have an objective in place in the first place? That's what we constantly see is missing. It's like, where do you want to go in the next 12 months? Like, what are you trying to do? My take is you asked what the root cause of all this is. I think a lot of attorneys are inspired by what they see other attorneys are doing without understanding what's behind it. But go back to the real problem here. We hear this all the time. We don't teach lawyers how to be business people, and yet we expect them to run a business. You can go to school and get a master's in hospital administration. Why can't you do that? Your master's in legal administration is facilitated by learning from other people, which means you're watching other people when you don't necessarily have that full insight. It's signing up for coaching programs. People are learning into their career that, oh, I'm not just successful because I'm a good lawyer, right? But we're not teaching how to be a good business person who happens to run a law firm. And that's a fundamental difference. And that's why I talked about there's the COO mindset, there's the lawyer who becomes the CEO. But like, we don't teach lawyers Foundational statistics, foundational accounting. These things are really important. You can't run a hospital without knowing these things. Why do we think we can run a law firm? And not to mention, I mean, look, there's a ton of pressure on agency people, coaching people, selling this dream of something. The one that's been really near and dear to my heart recently, because you're talking dark social, is this attribution stuff, right? So like the digital marketing people, we told everybody, last click, direct response attribution. Well, that's great. And there is a segment of every audience that is going to hire a lawyer that way. They're going to do a search. They're going to see a listing. They're going to click. They're going to call. They're going to hire. And that's all trackable. Amazing. But how are you going to account for someone when they're in a car accident? They think of you. They're not even going to the search engine, right? Where's your attribution for that? And you can talk about qualitative and how did you hear about us and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, I think part of this mess that we're in is quagmire is because Everybody wants to sell their stuff. The PPC shops are selling the PPC and the attribution thing. The brand folks, it's more fuzzy. So it's like, you got to just focus on building this brand. But at the end of the day, like it all to me, it's still that root problem is, is like, look, where are you trying to go? And then find people that can help you get to that point. And I think you cut through the noise a lot quicker. Yeah. And again, to your point, you have to know what's going on in your business because 
everything outside of it, I'll say as we do more and more marketing, we're sitting in meetings. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what works. I was pretty certain on this a few years ago. Now I'm becoming less and less and less, less certain because you hear about so many instances. We had a client the other day that became a client. They said, I've listened to every episode of the podcast for three years straight. We go into the CRM, never visited the website, never submitted a form, never downloaded a lead magnet. I can't tell who listens to the podcast. And it only took them 200 episodes. So it's like when you see that happen, what do you do? That's why I say don't optimize yourself into a box, right? You know, Gary Vee's big thing is like measure the ROI of your mom, right? You can't measure the ROI of your mom. That's not an ROI calculation. That's brand building, right? You're the destination. They're going to you as the expert here. They're circumventing all that machinery. And so again, people love to pit direct response against brand. What should I do? Should I go build reputation and brand or should I do direct response? And I'm like, do whatever's working for you, but it's about what kind of audience you're trying to attract. And I'm very much like, why not both? You should be doing both of these things. And you talked about this too, and you talked about the time horizon, but some things are short-term plays, right? And so if you need money in the door today, trying to rely on your long-term brand build, that's not going to pay the bills next month. On the other hand, though, you can't wait 10 years to plant those seeds because then you're never going to get around. It's always going to be 10 years out. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. What do you guys think that split should look like between short-term drivers and long-term drivers and then how that evolves over time? Because I'd say if a firm's just starting out, you probably shouldn't be building a community yet. Let's just figure out how to get the phone to ring. So maybe it's going to be 80, 90% short-term versus let's say firms that become market leaders, it almost seems like that should be flipped. What are your thoughts? So, I mean, it's an interesting concept. The person who's just starting out who has nothing to do, but they have time. They've got nothing to spend, but they've got time. I always tell people, if you're starting out, you've got time to invest and less money. By the way, it's not like you can put the junior intern on that. It is a long-term slog. And so I would start that right away, especially if you're starting out. The sad answer is, and this is really hard, the longer it takes for you to actually collect on whatever law you do. If you need clients tomorrow, it's pay-per-click. I can make your phone ring tonight right? Now, the flip side, and this is where we get into strategies and tactics, is those will be high-cost clients. They just are. But they're right there, and they're looking for you right now, or what you do right now. And so, pay-per-click is that immediate fix if you need the client right now. That is always the case. The people, I think, who will do that, but also invest in that long-term brand, that's the key. You're running on a pay-per-click treadmill that keeps going faster and faster and gets more and more expensive as Google continues to confuse the brand name of a law firm with the practice area that they do. They are going well out of their way to make it easy to spend money on that. And that cost just keeps ramping up. Well, then, Kyra, what happens in the situation you've described often is that then you have the law firm owner who's working 80 hours a week and is just saying, I just need a few more leads to get myself out of this pickle so I can go from 80 hours a week to maybe 90 hours a week and beyond, right? So it's just lead become the band-aid. I mean, the funny thing here there is you ask what makes a game-changing attorney. I've watched a lot of firms, aggressive growth-minded firms, early stage, but they are investing in the things that we're talking about. The hardest thing for them is making that higher where they're going to take their caseload dramatically down. That is such a hard mental chasm to breach. And those that have the wherewithal and the fortitude to make that happen, that's when firms start to change. I don't run a firm. I, like, I've never been a lawyer. But that is the fundamental shift of where, okay, I've got the marketing thing running really well. I'm running 80 hours a week. What should I do next? Maybe you're not running eight hours a week. Maybe you're not doing all those cases. That is a really hard piece for people to transition. It's mentally hard, right? And now you have another layer of responsibility that you have to fulfill.
Yeah, and it might not be your thing. You might just want to be the lawyer. And then you got to surround yourself with other people who can run the business. The other thing I wanted to respond to is, what do you tell someone just getting started? And get out in your local community. I mean, if you're a most of the consumer-facing, personal injury, criminal defense, family lawyer, it's community. It's not building your community, you know, not building your, like, your Slack community, but actually being out in your local community, going to the events, speaking at the high schools, socializing in a lot of ways, because it's old school. It's no like and trust, but that's how a lot of people still hire their lawyer like that. And I haven't practiced law since 2005, maybe. And I still get people that they know I'm a lawyer and they'll call me up and be like, hey man, I had this thing happen. And I'm like, I can't help you. I don't know anything about this, but guess what? They like me and they trust me. I don't have any expertise in what they're asking me about. And so we see this all the time. It's almost like they're marketing to other lawyers. They're like, I'm the head of the Trial Lawyers Association. I wrote the book on the thing. I've been practicing for 150 years. Legal services consumers, they don't know what any of that stuff means. They're like, I know this person because they're my neighbor, or I'm going to ask somebody that I trust to make a referral. And so if you're brand new, go start forging those relationships. And look, don't get me wrong. The internet and social media has given us a tool now to set that on fire because now the no like, and trust can spread much faster. You know, you don't have to go and actually have the face-to-face meeting all the time. But that's where I would start is you've got a list, right? It's people you already know. Your list is your friends and family, people you went to law school with, other professional service providers that have overlap with the clients that you serve. Go start building relationships with those folks. I think that's probably the best investment you can make if you're just getting started. So I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the rise of the influencer and more specifically around personal brand versus law firm brand. Because for years, you're talking about differentiating the firm, humanizing the firm, and now it is about becoming trusted advisor as well. Now, I will say I am biased towards this, but I'd love to get your guys' perspective on it. What does it look like when someone does it well versus maybe not so well? What do you guys think? The reality I think happens is it is so much easier to build a brand as a person than as a law firm. Literally built into the word is personality. And as your firm gets bigger, that becomes harder and harder to control. But there is so much value and it's just easier. You talk about going out in the community, right? It's easier to build that brand. You can put your logo over everything, but ideally that represents the person. It fits with that person's branding and messaging. I really believe that there's so much more that you can do. We'll use a silly example. You want to support the local community. I'm going to go talk about the restaurant that I'm eating at. I can't do that as the law firm right? I can't go and promote the local restaurant. I can't go and interact with people as the brand. I'm interacting with the community as a person. And so we call this the face. If you are the face of that firm, lean deeper and deeper into that because it's so much more effective than trying to market the brand of the law firm. I'm with you on the difference in difficulty. I've seen it work both ways. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to give that annoying, it depends answer. There's downside to the face, right? Because yeah. The face dies. Face dies. Face doesn't scale. The face uh, doesn't like being out in public, right? The, These at, are hard problems. This is what I tell everybody too. It's like, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think at the head of your firm. The people who are going to hire your firm or hire you, what do they think? Like, are they more likely to hire you in this particular context? I would say a ton of legal services context. That is the right answer. People are hiring the lawyer, not the firm. Go read the Google business profile reviews. They're not like the firm was awesome. They're like Bill or Jen or whoever was it that hired that worked my case. They were amazing. And sometimes not even the lawyer. It's like the support people that are there. Your support people, they're your client service, they're your customer service people. And so anyway, from a branding perspective, especially as you're starting out, I think it's natural to do that. 
That being said, there are plenty of firms that kind of do both. There's like, look, we got a collection of these great personalities. They're all under this roof. And that's, I think, the answer. But you can do both ways. I mean, looking at search console data from a lot of firms that have brand recognition that aren't lawyer names, it can happen. I agree on the it's easier to do it as a person. And I think if you really broke the numbers down big picture, it's more efficient, right? You're going to convert more potential clients to clients doing the personalized personal brand than you are trying to get your logo out there. And again, I kind of look at it as short-term, long-term too. As you grow, the other downside that we didn't talk about is John Morgan doesn't work every case for Morgan and Morgan. And so you got to remember that from a client expectation standpoint, talking about there's other people that are going to be on this team. I think that's important if you're going to go in the direction of building the logo or the big brand, but you can do both. But I do think you're getting started. I think the personal brand is the way to start. What mistakes do you think people make when it comes to personal brand? Oh, this is oh. an easy one for me. <laughs> okay, yeah, we've, yes, go. Well, for me, it's the affinity is the word because there's this lawyer in Southern California. He's bringing his clients out of the courthouse after he's getting him acquittals. And he's got him right there and being like, tell everybody how awesome it was, how great of a job I did and acquittal and all this kind of stuff. It's certainly branding. I mean, no one else is doing that. I'm going to put the, all the legal ethics issues aside. But where's the affinity? Does that make people like you more? Does it make you trust you more? And so take the TikTok dancer. I got 8 million followers. I'm dancing on TikTok. I've got the subtitles up. I got all sorts of little jiffies floating around, super entertaining. For some people, that might actually resonate. But is that person going to trust you with the most difficult thing in their life to help them through it because they saw you dance on TikTok? And again, you might be a TikTok dancer and a great lawyer. That's totally possible. But I think people, they get too focused on the reach part of it and not as focused on the, oh, I actually also still need to demonstrate expertise. I need to demonstrate trust that I'm actually the person that can actually help you solve this issue that you're dealing with. I think sometimes we get a little bit too excited about getting the vanity metrics and followers and stuff. So it just becomes attention at any cost, doesn't matter. And I'm not so sure that that works all the time. So I thought you were actually going to go on the other side of this. Okay. I thought you were going to say people who are so desperately trying to convince the public that they're a lawyer. And oh, God. Yeah. I, I, yeah that's, that's where bad I thought too. you were going to go. That's bad, too. So Guy's gone on one of the extremes. The other end is you don't need to convince us that you're an attorney. You don't need to have all the trappings. You don't need to be dull and sterile. There's more to you than the law degree. And what people want is who is behind that law degree? Why am I hiring you? Why am I hiring you instead of all the other people on the internet? And Because you fight so hard. Because I fight so hard and you I went to a great law I win school. dollars. My firm has 57 years of combined experience and blah, 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 like all that stuff. Move away from that. Let who you are come out because people want to know your story. Everyone's got a good story. Everyone's interested in something. And so how do you let the person behind the JD step in front of the JD? Otherwise, you're just another suit. I mean, that's the thing people ask is like, well, like, what should we be doing? And I'm like, well, what are you into? I think being your authentic self, that's the best marketing advice I can give anybody because some people are going to gravitate to that thing, whatever it is. You're into the Chicago food scene, videos of you eating, eating at your favorite restaurants, that kind of thing. People are like, oh, yeah, I'm into that, too. I went to that restaurant last week. You start having conversations about it. You start building a relationship. That's the stuff that I think works from a personal branding standpoint. And so again, I think it's the middle, right? It's like, be your authentic self. You do have to position yourself. That's another big mistake, I think. You talk to lawyers and like, well, what are you, are you? I'm a personal injury lawyer. Well, that's not really positioning. There's lots of other personal injury lawyers. Like, what's the unique thing about you? Why should someone hire you? Why are you qualified? But you don't have to beat people over the head with it where like everything you do is free consultation, $10 million jury verdict. Yeah. It's almost like finding that balance between 
doing something that's interesting and valuable to someone, but also could be monetizable down the line. You are creating demand to some extent. And I agree, Gabe. If you're just dancing on TikTok and you get a lot of likes and I'm like, oh, this person's ridiculous with a bunch of comments. I don't know that I'd be too thrilled about that in terms of converting into clients and cases. But at the same time, I also see people make the mistake when they're building personal brand that they believe every single piece of content they create should convert into a client or a case. Right. Yeah, right? that's yeah. a huge mistake. That's probably the bigger problem, yeah, to yeah. be honest with you. You're probably right about that. If you're talking about volume, more lawyers think that social media is just another way for them to play their TV commercial. <laughs> yeah. well, to that's a good like, yeah. Instead of actually being like, hey, this is what I'm into. This is why I do what I do. Tell your origin story. More importantly than that, it's like, it's actually more important to hear from your clients, right? It's the reviews and the testimonials. I mean, you know, the video testimonials, super powerful. It's the dark social conversations that are happening in the chat ads that you can't do attribution to because everything breaks. That's where your reputation is really happening all behind the scenes. It's happening in the place that you don't even exist. Yeah. There's so much nuance to it as well. Because somebody asked me the other day, they're like, well, I started a podcast. I haven't got any clients from it. I said, well, how many episodes do you do? And they're like, 20. I'm like, Who besides your mom is listening to You have to an it. expectation yeah. that people are going to listen to you like they listen yeah. to Joe Rogan. I'm like, and by the way, you know how many episodes Joe Rogan has recorded of his podcast? I think it's over 3,000. It's not even just the quantity play. He's had really interesting guests, really interesting conversations, and there's been the amplification of it through the partnership with Spotify and then previously with YouTube. There's a lot there that all these things had to come together to yield a really great outcome. But just because you recorded 20 episodes doesn't mean that you're now the most subscribed legal podcast on the planet. At the same time, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do that. The advice I always give to people when they ask me how to create a successful podcast is go record 100 episodes and then come back and ask me that question again. Go out and do it. Do it consistently enough. You'll learn enough things over the 100 reps to actually start to make things a little bit better. And then now you'll be ready to start again and keep going. Well, that's I think to your point, too, it's like forget about the 20 episodes. What's your podcast about? Is it about legislative changes that are affecting personal injury litigation in your state? How many subscribers are you expecting to get? You know, maybe you get a couple of lawyers that are interested in that subject matter, but someone that's getting in a car accident, they don't care about that. Yeah. And maybe that's not even the metric you should be going for, right? right? Maybe subscribers and downloads doesn't matter as much. Maybe you use the podcast as a way to get people in your community on the podcast and use that as a way to build your network, for example. I love that. We talk about this all the time. The local podcast, anything local, right? Getting out there and finding those mini influencers in your community, having partnerships with them, content with them. You see it with like, you go to the small business community, interview the other business owners. Because those are the influencers in your community. People are talking to them. They're going to all the business meetings. They've got kids in the community too. So they're on the youth sports leagues. Having a podcast that's covering your local community, that's a great idea. So we can't do a podcast without talking about everyone's favorite topic, which is AI. Every few years, something comes along. Look, I'm not talking about Web 3.0 or any of that. We're not talking about NFTs. But every few years, something comes along where people get really scared, right? And it becomes almost like a turning point of those that embrace versus those that ignore that. Then maybe some in between. What should people be worried about with AI? And then what should people be excited about? Particularly in legal. Yeah. And what time horizon are we talking about here? You're like, you want to go with singularity, like Ray Kurzweil stuff, that kind of worry? That's a little ways off. Let's say a year and then 10 years. Okay. A year... It's an assistive tool. It's an amazing tool. We use it for content ideation, for outlining content. It helps identify blind spots for things you wouldn't have thought about. I think it can make some of your communication processes much more efficient because you can create a seed and let generative AI come up with different versions with different voice and tone for emails you might use. I know Lawmatics has implemented some of that. I know some other legal tech products are putting that kind of stuff in there. 
for analysis. Google Analytics has had AI-assisted insights and analysis for years. Uh, their Google Ads product also does. It's not that awesome. But the insights and analysis stuff, I think, is super powerful because it can take in a lot of data and find patterns faster and better than we can. And so those are some of the ways that we've seen it, at least in the one-year thing. And so you can't just ignore it. There's another one you can't ignore, right? You got to know about it. And it's like, well, what do you do? On the other hand, should you be like, write me a 4,000 word blog post and then just copy and paste it? I mean, we know the SEOs that when this stuff first became accessible, hooked the WordPress API up to the chat GPT API, cranked out tens of thousands of pages a day just to get search engine visibility. And it worked until Google figured it out and then de-indexed the entire site. That's a thing. So I think remembering that it's an assistive tool. I don't know if Tom Martin gets credit for this, but he's the one that brought it to my attention. Think of it as like a word calculator. It's just helping you assist word production, but it's not a replacement. It's not a replacement for the ingenuity. You got to seed it with good information. 10 years from now, though, I mean, that's the other thing that's scary about it is it learns so fast. We see this all the time. People are like, well, don't be a Luddite and don't be afraid. It's not coming for your job. And I do think that there's some truth to the people that harness it. There's always a place until we get to like general you know, super intelligence. There's always a place for human beings. It should free up more time to do the human part of lawyering. It should free up more time to do service and to empathize with your clients and to do a lot of the things that it just can't do as a human being. But if you're billing for those rote production types of tasks, you're in trouble because your total body of available inventory of hours is going down because you can't charge it. The market's going to go around it because they're going to find the firms that can actually do this more efficiently. So I agree. I think it's going to redefine what is value and what is value from human beings. I agree in terms of anything transactional. If you look at it within the legal profession, there is probably an overcompensation to value provided on a lot of transactional style services. If you're drafting NDAs, drafting demand letters, you're getting a very high degree of compensation for relative to the time and expertise level involved in that particular task. That does make sense that ultimately tools and AI tools will make that a thing of the past. But then you will shift your time, energy, and efforts into different value-producing tasks and ones that involve critical thinking and driving more leverage, trial skills, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And the emotional side. I mean, that's the thing is, is like the AI, it's ways away from doing emotion. Even think about this, like the energy that the three of us have just sitting here, the motor neurons that are firing in our brains, the AI can't do that. And so that's the study, you know, in the context of law practice, whether you're face-to-face -face in a deposition or you're at trial or you're just listen to a client tell their story. The AI is not there to do that yet. The big thing with AI that first came out, which you probably first thought of, was like, what does this mean for SEO, right? And I get this all the time. Someone actually sent me an email, they're like, oh, you must be dead now because of ChatGPT. <laughs> oh, darn it. <laughs> with the assist concept, it's just made that leg of the SEO stool easier to play in. That's all. It has not been revolutionary. It'll be revolutionary where people have to catch up on that leg of the stool if your content count is garbage, right? Like it's now easier to put out more content. But again, it's the word calculator. I'm creating content. It's just making it more efficient. I don't see it having a mess. I mean, I just calculated all the different times that Google has changed their mind on their policies of what is appropriate content and they can't even tell anymore. Yeah. I think I was going to say we'd be remiss as two SEO nerds here not addressing this. Can you just chat GPT your way to the top of Google? And the answer is you can Go search for ChatGPT for legal marketing right now as you're listening to this and go see what comes up organically because I can tell you that one of the listings there is completely written by ChatGPT. 
But to Conrad's point, the devil is in the details about how you're implementing it, right? If you're using it as an assistive tool, human edit. If you're going to publish stuff on behalf of your law firm or behalf of you as a lawyer, you better be right. If you're going to have legal expertise content that's designed to attract and convert clients, it better not be gibberish because I don't care if you rank number one, you're not going to convert a single client. But as a tool to support you, to give you ideas, to lay the outline out, super powerful. And Google, they can't tell the difference. I'm going to tell you, they just can't. And pretty soon, the scary part is, is that for a lot of content, not for all of it, but for a lot of content, we're not going to be able to tell the difference. And then the really scary part is it's not just written content, it's voice and video avatars. I'm sure you're following this closely, but to be able to like just do a script and then have a video of you, we used to call them deep fakes, but now people are actually using this stuff. Google's not going to be able to tell the difference because we're not going to be able to tell the difference. So what does someone do, right? Let's say they are what you just said. They're freaked out. I do also want to say there's another side of this, of course, that is very optimistic as well. I'm excited about it in many, many respects in the standpoint of you start to wonder with all the AI advancements from a data and research standpoint, the insights you'll be able to gain when you get into paid media. I mean, you look at Facebook's algorithm. I've been saying for years, I feel like this is going to get to a point in the near future where you may not even need paid ads managers because the algorithm is going to do such a good job optimizing for what it is that you want. Well, and Google's been working on that for a long time. That's not new. They've got this algorithm that they try and get you to continue to buy into these tools. And the tools are getting better and better and better. AI can determine gender by looking at your iris scan. And no one can tell you why it can do that, right? That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. So can it optimize a pay-per-click ad? You bet it can. Slightly different approach. I'm going to use your own point. The paid media managers, they're just doing the transactional work. They're done. But the paid media managers that now they're digging in and understanding the business and they're seeding messaging ideas to be tested, they're always going to have a role. And the other thing that I'll remind everybody is Google and Facebook, they're not incentivized to deliver return on ad spend or target cost per client. They're incentivized to get people to click. And folks, if you want some interesting stuff, I don't know if you guys are following The DOJ has all of the Google antitrust exhibits posted on the website, so go check it out. But there's literally conversations between the ads team and the search team talking about ways to change the layout of the search and result page to get more clicks to hit revenue targets. So before you just turn it over to Google's AI or Facebook's AI to run your ad campaigns, you better have someone on the inside that actually knows your business metrics that's actually holding the platform accountable for hitting those metrics. As we come to a close, Conrad, you get to answer this a second time. You get to answer this for the first time. This being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? So, you know, I actually, this is because I'm nerdy like this. So I went out, I'm going to go look up, how's game changer defined, defined in the dictionary? And the thing is, it's about outcome changing. And so to me, it's the people or the thing at the firm. Maybe it's a process. Maybe it's a hire. Maybe it's the attorney themselves. But they're like, I'm changing the outcome here. And that can be in the context of business. It can be changing the outcome for your business when you're talking about the mindset and the culture that you're building your business. It can be about changing the game for a client. It can be about changing the game for a community. I know a lot of these firms that are reinvesting in their communities are making big change, but that's what it means to me. It's about outcome changing, being that change agent at the risk of defining the term with the term. It's a, a wonderful thing when it happens and you see it when you've been affecting families and affecting community. That's one of the reasons I'm in legal. I mean, at the end of the day, lawyers... They're helping folks. They're helping folks deal with some of the hardest parts of their lives and they're changing the game daily. 
So for me, I have a printout. It was a, actually a Facebook post that I copied and pasted onto a piece of paper, old school, sticky tape to my wall. It's a little writing out by Ryan McKean. He's an attorney, super, super smart guy. And there's two components to this. One is the speed at which his firm moves is very fast. He says, we do things really quickly here, but it's because we have a really, really solid understanding of where we're going. So it's not really difficult to make those changes because the question is, is it helping us get there or not? You can move really quickly when you have a really stable understanding of where the future is. And if you can get your entire team to buy into that vision of the future, you can make those quick moves and you're not afraid of making mistakes. Right. Too many times people are like, oh, I did this and it was a mistake and we failed. Well, now, you know, something that doesn't work. Right. The old thing. But you can move really quickly if you have a stable version of the future. And to me, that is so unbelievably key because most of the firms have a struggle in describing the future and in moving quickly. You guys don't move quickly. And we're in technology. This stuff changes all the time. And it's the people who can move quickly and adapt and learn because they have that solid vision of the future. That's super key. I want to give a huge thank you to Conrad and Guy for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Conrad and Gee, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh,